Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with <laughs> Stefan Sebesta. Say your name for me, man. I want to make sure we get this right. I know I yeah, almost got it right. I know it's difficult. It's uh, Stefan Sebesta. Okay. All right. He's the CEO of North America Send and Blue and VP of Corporate Development. And I want to appreciate, I want to let you know, I really appreciate having you on the show for today. And I just, I, I can't believe I stumbled your name. It's like this, I say I'm not going to, so then I did. We'll go with that. Thank you for being here today. And let's just start off with your origin, man. How did you get started? And kind of, you have a very interesting story that I think people are going to love to hear. Let's kind of jump into kind of how did you get started in, as an entrepreneur? And then, and then how did you get started into acquiring businesses and being acquired? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So originally I'm from Germany. So I was born and raised in Berlin, the capital of Germany. And that's where I grew up, went to high school. And during high school, my high school years, I started programming a bit. And from there, during university, together with a with an old school friend, we started like a web agency, I would say, We're building some websites and just financing our studies that way. And then like one year in university, I had a class called entrepreneurship, and we had to write a business plan. And we had just finished a project for one of our customers, we built a little program like a you had to install desktop software to send out emails, like a newsletter software, basically. And that brought us to the idea to write a business plan on an email marketing as a service. And we did that and then was really well received. We actually participated in a competition. Over 300 business plans were submitted. We finished in seventh place, which we thought was amazing. Of course, we never expected to finish that high. The first six were awarded with money and we were like the first one. Damn it. <laughs> Once we heard that, we were really disappointed before we were really happy. So anyways, we started working on that. And then from that web agency, we kind of transitioned into programming the software for small and medium businesses for them to do all kinds of email marketing stuff like marketing automation, sending e-blasts, um, transactional emails and so on. And we started that in, in 2011, had one angel investor who invested like 50,000 euros back in the day. We didn't know what we were doing, to be honest. We were pretty young. We were both studying at the time, still in university. Uh, but somehow we got a little bit of traction. We we're able to make it grow over the years. And eventually in 2018, we had reached a company size of about like 70, 80 employees. And we're one of the top three players in the German market when it comes to software as a service for email marketing. And kind of hit some limits in terms of growth, like international growth, especially. We looked around 
for possible partners and people reach out to us, other companies and ask if, if we're open to an acquisition. So in the end, we actually were completely like 100% acquired by our French competitor called Sendinblue. And that's a company I now work for, which is funny because now after, after the acquisition, early 2019, my position obviously changed from being the CEO in Germany. I moved to Canada, I opened our go-to-market office in, in North America. So I live in Toronto now. And I also became the VP corporate development just because I was like naturally interested in that. And we also became more active on that field as an acquirer. We've actually acquired a couple of companies over the last 12 months, five to be specific. So we're pretty active and I'm like in this unique position where I feel like I understand the founders pretty well because I've been in their position. And on the other hand, now I'm of course trying to, to see it from the other side, from the buyer side. So that's pretty much my backstory and yeah, I work a lot on the M&A, on the M&A side and it's pretty fun. It's interesting. I have a background in email. I'm going to date myself here prior to 2008. So I don't know when you started at newsletters ago was the, was the name of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. I don't know when you started that, but prior to 2008, I actually ran some of the largest email systems on the planet. Um, outsourced email systems. I actually participated in some of the startups that started the anti-spam, like how to control spam in the space. Like I've flown to, to Seattle, Washington and been in Julian Hayes' house, who used to own and run SpamCop and helped bring some equipment to him to ha help handle a denial of service attack he had. I helped, I was at uh, Brightmail that was an anti-spam solution that was bought by Symantec. And then I worked at a couple companies you'd never know of, but they ran email for like Netscape and some other companies that they outsource some of their email stuff to it. So I understand the complexity of that, right? Yeah. You're having to go through, like manage all these white labels and like just all the different stuff it takes to get email delivered. I don't want to undermine the feat of what it took to create what you created because there's something to that, right? To build a company that can deliver marketing material through email had some technical roadblocks you guys were able to get through. Now you're in Canada now and you're with Send and Blue. You guys have acquired five companies in less than, was it 12 months now? Yeah, in 12 months. And you've got one. By the time this show airs, you'll probably be on your sixth one is what it sounds like. You've got one you're working yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. That is almost unheard of, right? That's acquiring, finding deals and acquiring them is one thing. Bringing them in, integrating them, having them, having the cultures fit, everything is another. How are you guys working with the integration? How are you guys... We're going to dive back into how you find so many deals that, that actually pull the trigger on. But the yeah. thing that intrigues me the most now is what does integration look like? And it sounds like a lot of these companies are all over the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much all over the world. It was like focus on Europe, but we also acquired one company in India. So yeah, pretty, pretty spread out. One company was completely remote. Another company, the founder was in New York. The rest of the team was mostly in Austria. Yeah, so nowadays that's a new setup. <laughs> Everybody works remotely or hybrid. And so the culture, though, you have Sin and Blue's culture, you have newsletters to Go's culture because you had to integrate that. So technically, Sin and Blue now they required you acquired you what two years ago? Sound like beginning of twenty nineteen, uh, almost three now. Yeah. In less than three years, they've acquired going on seven. Is that correct, or is there other ones in between? Actually, yeah, there's another one which is a French company called Mail Clark that we acquired in between as well. They're very skilled in this, right? You guys are up and running, things are working. Talk about the process of the onboarding, like, you know, what yeah. does it look like? Once you're, once you've 
pull the trigger, you own the brand, you have the technology. What is it that happens after that to, to help them continue to be successful and not lose the key employees? I mean, the biggest thing that happens when most acquisitions occur is people scatter like roaches when the lights come on, right? They freak out, don't know that their future is uncertain and they leave. Yeah. And I've exactly, I've gone through this whole process myself and mm -hmm. um, that was the first acquisition. The first time I sold a company and the first time Senulu acquired a company, you can imagine it was pretty chaotic. That was not that much of like strategy behind and how we put things in place. We just figured it out over time. And of course we had a lot of learnings and with young companies, it's normal and you got to stay agile and things change. And you have to to adapt so we figured it out but of course it was not not ideal so over over the years i think what we've done really well is to really understand what our sweet spot is and acquiring a company like newsletter to go back in 2019 we were yeah like 70 80 employees and Sand blue was about 150 employees that was almost like a merger right it's not that big of a difference so that was pretty tough, to be honest. The companies that we acquire now over the last 12 months, they're much smaller in comparison. Now we have about 650 employees worldwide. And the companies that we acquired were between 5 and 25, 30 employees over the last 12 months. So it's a completely different game. But it makes things much easier. But the one thing, like in terms of integration, and of course, having a smaller team, um, for the buyer on the buyer side, it makes it easier because we know exactly where to put these people. We integrate them in our structure. On the seller side, and from the founder's perspective, we still have to be careful that we can still provide these founders perspective where they have impact on the group and where they don't feel like they're lost all of a sudden in a huge company, right? And that, that's super important. How we integrate companies and how we make sure that a company is a good fit for us. I would say a lot of it is pre-acquisition already in terms of like vetting. And it's like, I compared to like a hiring process on steroids basically. So we make sure we interview everybody, every single person from the company that we acquire. I think one important, one important topic as well is to, to work with a team to a certain extent before the acquisition. So usually the whole process takes between three and six months. Like we're pretty fast, but like you, it's almost impossible to do it under three months, including due diligence and drafting off the SBA and, and so on. So we have a bit of time together where we work together. We have meetings together. We can build trust and we also see how the founders perform over time. And that's a very, very interesting process, I think. We've had cases where we stopped the process in during these three or six months because we didn't feel like we were aligned with the founders anymore or with the team that we are acquiring. And for us, the way we acquire, the product and the team are the most important assets of the company. We're always acquiring companies, or lately especially, where we think they can provide value to the Sendum Blue form that we currently don't have. So mostly on the product side, maybe access to, to markets or, or industries that we don't have, but it's mostly about product extension and having that in mind, it's, it's key that these employees and the team stay motivated, provide value. And typically what's really interesting for these founders that we acquire is that they get access to about 
three, 400,000 active customers on the Sendinaboo platform right away. And if you have a company in that range that I mentioned, like five to 30 employees, you're, you've shown first product market fit and you have first traction, but you haven't really scaled the business to a big degree and you don't have, typically you don't have like hundred thousands of, of customers, right? So that's usually an interesting perspective for the founders and a good motivation where they can have impact is to get access to three, 400,000 users. So they roll out their, their feature that they build over years and they're, they're experts. And for example, we acquired a company called MeetFox. It's like a meeting and scheduling tool. And they had a couple of thousand customers on their, or users on their platform. And all of a sudden they get access to three, 400,000. It's a big leap kind of you, you're kind of jumping, jumping ahead in your company stage. So that's really motivating when it comes to founders for, and I think that's something that can keep them incentivized and motivated over a long time. But of course, there's also other mechanisms, mechanisms that we use in the background to keep team members engaged in the team. Now, when you acquire these companies, are they keeping, are their websites, their brand, their software staying in existence under their own stuff and, or are you bringing them in, integrating the features and stuff and redirecting domains to send in blue? Like what happens to their product? It depends. It depends on the companies. Like if we have smaller companies, sometimes it's even more like an acquihire. If it's bigger, the brands need to exist. They continue to, they continue to grow and typically companies, our sweet spot that the companies that we acquire, like I said, they have to have like first product market fit and have to have a good traction, typically growing faster than Send and Blue. And we're already growing relatively fast for mm-hmm. our company size. We don't want to cannibalize our own business and we want to keep that traction going that the startups that we acquire have. It's a difficult path in a way, because on one hand, we want to bring that value, want to integrate that product into Send and Blue as soon as possible. But on the other hand, we also want to keep the revenue that the company already generates and we want to keep it growing. And a lot of times they have, I mean, they've done something well and they have their customers that are happy and and thousands of customers in in many cases, and they have built a network and their community. So we want to make sure this is like part of the assets that they bring to Sendable. We want to make sure that they keep them and we can continue using them and building on them. So that's interesting. So, I mean, Google is the same thing. They'll acquire a company, they'll keep running it as, as it, and then eventually over time, a lot of the features and functions move into like Google Maps was pretty much built off of other companies they bought. I think Google even owns Waze now, but a lot of the Waze yeah. features where like shows a cop ahead are starting to show up on your Google routes. And I mean, they integrated the technology and features in, but you can still go to Waze if you want to. I like the strategy. I was just curious on how you guys approach that. And then you have two different separate. Some people just want, like I use Calendarly now, but some people just want the meet. I just want something to manage my calendar. I don't need all the other stuff. I already have something for that. So if you did a full integration, you would like say they had a thousand users you might lose as many as 30, 40, 50% of them because they just, they already have a CRM. They already have these other tools and they weren't wanting to move everything. They just needed that one thing. I was curious on like that, that integration as far as integrating the technologies. Does the technology stack matter? Like when you're looking for acquiring, is like the fact they're writing their code in 
C or writing their code and whatever the Ruby on Rails. I'm dating myself here because that's stuff I knew when I was doing it. Yeah. <laughs> PHP. I don't even know what the current one is. That's horrible. I can tell it's been a while for you. <laughs> PHP. Oh, well, yeah. I guess in the more modern, <laughs> modern text. Yeah. Um, no, but for us, to be honest, it doesn't matter that much. I guess it depends on the structure of your tech and our tech is more around like microservices. So like every service can be written in another language as well without being too technical, <laughs> hopefully for the audience. Yeah. So it's pretty much as long as they, they have their tech under control and it's scalable to a certain degree, then, then it's definitely fine. Me not knowing the te current technology stack is bad, considering <laughs> when I was your age, I was working for Lockheed Martin, hacking into firewalls for three-lettered three agencies. <laughs> I have a tech background. I work for Lockheed Martin. We design firewall systems for U.S. agencies that don't exist or don't want to be, don't want you to know what type of firewall they're building. I even helped re redesign the mission planning system for the U-2 spy plane. The picture that yeah. takes pictures. And I'm dating myself here because that's an old, that's an old platform. But we moved it off of VAC systems and onto something new. I understand technology. I'm just not current on it because I haven't done it in, what, 15 years now. The technology stack doesn't matter. The team and the product and the product market fit, the fact that they're growing matters more than what code they're writing it in. That's interesting because as if I was looking for something, like kind of distancing myself from tech, from tech, I think a lot of the acquisition entrepreneurs, they buy something, they want the next acquisition to have the same the same coding language or whatever, so that the programmers can jump from one project to the another. And yeah. it doesn't and, have to be the same language, but it should be the same like mindset, I would say, and like a modern, modern approach yeah. to technology. But that's usually the case. We acquire companies that have been on the market for a couple of years, under 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're typically like product led growth companies that are pretty, pretty strong on the tech side. I don't do the tech due diligence, even though I also used to program a bit when I was younger Yeah, and I developed the first version of our software, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's been a long time. I'm with you on the PHP <laughs> back in the day. But it's like, even when I used to write code, I used to joke around and somebody said, you write code? I was like, yeah, I'm a functional programmer. And they're thinking C and functions. Like, no, no, I write it into a function to do what I want it to do. And then I give it to somebody else. Cause I, I was never a good programmer, even though I've written some code and took the classes in college and stuff. I was just never into it enough to be proficient and great at it. Let's jump back into the mergers and acquisition side of things. I'm curious. There's a curiosity question that's in the back of my head. Sin in blue, is it VC backed or is it private equity? Both. <laughs> oh, there's, there's two, like the VC world is like startup, unicorn hunting, the yeah. picture I get. I've been in that space. I've worked for those companies where private equity is all about growth through acquisition and fast scaling. And so that's yeah. what I like. I've seen traits from both of it and what we've been discussing. So I was curious. So they've got backing from both sides of it. So they've got the bones of being VC backed and being able to grow fast and have money to develop things out. But you got your taste, you may have got your taste of acquisition through the PE world, right? Yeah, exactly. So initially VC backed Partech, uh, one of the biggest, uh, most successful French VCs. And then in 2020, yeah, October, 2020, we raised a series B and the lead was Bridgepoint, which is a British PE, but Partech also invested again. And then a, a French public fund called BPI France. It's really an interesting mix. It's backing us. And yeah, you can definitely see that in the strategy for us as well. What I like about Bridgepoint is even though they are PE, 
we still have a lot of flexibility around our strategy and they kind of behave like a VC in many cases as well. And yeah, we can, we can be pretty aggressive when it comes to acquisitions as well and pretty wide range of opportunities there. So let's circle back around. I told you I was going to ask, go back to this in a minute. To, in order for you to acquire five going on six and for Ascend in Blue to even if you back it out to three or four years and to do a seven or eight acquisitions, there's got to be a source, right? There's a team or a group of people out there looking for acquisition targets. So how do you guys do deal sourcing? What is the process you go through to identify, evaluate, and know that he's worth even looking at and doing, a, doing meetings with? It's honestly a mix of opportunistic, inbound, and strategic outreach. On the strategic side, we we talk together like in the C-level. I talk to the founder and global CEO of the company. And we have certain hypotheses. Like last year, we're a lot around e-commerce. Obviously, like then this year, there was a bit of a downturn. This year, we're really focused on CRM. So we... Last year, we acquired three companies in the e-commerce space. One was in the e-commerce analytics called Metrilo, another one called Chatra, which was like an AI-enabled chatbot, and the third one was called PushOwl, which is a push notification company for Shopify. And then this year, we focused more on the CRM side, so it was MeetFox, the scheduling meeting software, and then very recently, a company called Yodel in the voice over IP cloud telephony space. And this will, these two will be additions to our sales CRM. So like, these are the hypotheses behind it. And we know some weaknesses in our system that we want to fix. And what we've seen in the past, if we bring in founders that are very motivated and bring that knowledge, like that subject matter expertise, that's an additional benefit for the whole group that is very hard to, um, to build inside the company. You always have the question around buy or build, right? And sometimes you would say, okay, you acquired a company, you know, you paid X amount, I don't know, X million for this company. And now you add this one feature or multiple features around maybe meeting and scheduling. Why didn't you just build that in-house, right? And the answer is, first of all, there's a solution out there that has proven that it works and has product market fit. But more importantly, there's a team around that really understands that market. And that's very difficult to have that in-house and build that muscle in-house. And I think that's really the biggest, the biggest benefit of acquiring a company in that field. Okay, but back to your question, how do we source deals? Yeah, out of these deals, a lot of them were inbound. I get about two to three decks per week. And I look at all of these deals and I discuss them with our CPO, with our CEO or other stakeholders in the company. If I think they're interesting, sometimes there's obviously a mismatch and then they're out immediately, but a lot of deals make it to, to at least that discussion stage. And then I schedule next calls. I meet the founders and so on. If I think it, it's interesting, we get a bit more information, mostly about like unit economics, growth rates, and so on to see if it kind of falls into that sweet spot that we have identified. And then we continue talks on the strategic side from just discussions. We have like strategic discussions with the C-level and the executive team. I reach typically like it's Currently, it's me and I have some help, of course, from the legal team, from the finance team, our chief of staff who recently joined, who used to work for Partech, our VC investor. So 
we're working together on, on these topics. And I also get some help from the product team. Like sometimes I do some research, like basically come up with a long list and have a product manager testing out these products and telling me if they think it would be a good match for us. So that's one way as well. And funny enough, one acquisition, the latest one, Yodel, that was a referral. <laughs> so Meatfox, the founders of Meatfox knew Yodel and basically introduced us. So that was an, that was an interesting case as well. So really a mix of different sources. I think in the future will be more strategic, but there are good, a lot of good opportunities out there and we're willing to take that chance. And I know a lot of companies maybe don't have the resources or aren't willing to do that. But for in our case, especially nowadays with valuations of tech companies dropping and startups running out of money and maybe struggling or having, having to shift or pivot. There's quite a lot of interesting opportunities out there that we're looking at. I can see the referral side, actually, as you get more and more of these, I can see the referral side kicking up a little bit too. Just think about it. Like each CEO you bring in, you just simply ask, who have you integrated with and who's buying your product and they're buying something else and they've asked you to integrate with them. So you guys worked hand in hand yeah. already with, and that now you got a new acquisition target because you already know company X has 2000 users, got product market fit, and they they spent time, money, and energy integrating with company Y because all their users were asking them to. And that company has a few thousand users and it makes and it fits in your space. So I could see more referrals too. I wasn't shocked yeah. to hear that. Now the inbound maybe, is... Maybe to add to that as well. Like now, after so many acquisitions and that being shared across the company as well, introduced, our employees like sometimes reach out to me like, hey, I'm using this tool or... This could be a good idea for an acquisition. So actually it's a whole mindset in the whole company. I feel like sometimes I get an email from a sales manager. I just used this sales tool and I think it would be so cool to have that on top of our sales CRM. <laughs> Why don't you take a look at this? I'm like, yeah, actually that might make sense. <laughs> so you've yeah. trained 600 deal scouts. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It'll get all your employees. And the word gets out, right? If you're on shows like this talking about it and you're yeah. in, in other media sources talking about the six acquisitions in a year, eight and three years, people yeah. in, people in your space know that you acquire companies yeah, like exactly. them. And that might yeah. be part of your inbound source, right? Is, yeah, exactly. Are they coming from CEOs just reaching out to you? Hey, I would consider selling. I'd love to be part of your team. Are you interested in talking to us? Or are they coming from ZCs as like, hey, we're done funding this. Would you like it? Yeah. All over. Depends all on over. the company size. I've had founders reach out on LinkedIn just or on, on by email asking me if we're interested. And like, these are sometimes very small companies. Typically, typical scenarios, they go through some kind of M&A advisor, banker that contact me. And then I get like a first deck, confidential deck. And then we go through information memorandum and then sign an NDA and get more information over time. Are you on the market right now? Is there anything you're hunting for? If I found a company that matched X, Y, and Z, I'd be interested in talking <laughs> to them. We're always looking for companies that can complement our product offering. Like I said, this year it was a lot about sales CRM. I don't think we're done there yet. Other channels could continue to make, to make sense for us. We started with email marketing, maybe to give a bit of context. We started with email marketing automation, added SMS marketing after. And nowadays we have a lot of other channels. We have our sales CRM. We have an email inbox, which is almost like Zendesk. We have Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp messengers. We have web push with the acquisition of push Owl last year. We have a landing page builder. So it's really a, an all in one 
solution, not only for online marketing, like that's where we started, but now we have also sales and even customer service that can use our platform. And that's the overarching idea is to build this all-in-one software for small and medium businesses that they can use to grow their business. So anything that fits into that narrative is quite interesting. And I definitely take a look. Is your Ascend in Blue's game plan, like what's your long-term game plan? Is that public? Is that something you can share? What's the end goal here? What are you guys, what are you driving towards? The end goal is really to give small and medium businesses, especially like during the pandemic, so many businesses went bankrupt and went out of business. And it's so hard for them to compete with the Amazons and Walmarts of the world, right? So our, you know, our mission is to put small and medium or very small businesses and small and medium businesses on equal footing with the big players. And that's what we're building. We're building a solution that is easy to use, that's affordable, accessible for these businesses and can maybe it won't do like 100% of a Salesforce or Adobe Marketing Cloud or whatever, but it will do like 95%. And that's much more than they currently have access to at a price point that is actually doable for them. And with a, an ease of use where they don't need to pay for an account manager or they don't have to go through three months of training, right? That's basically why Send and Blue exists. And the business name that comes to my mind a lot is like, that might be not an acquisition target of you, but maybe an acquisition target for you. <laughs> Meaning that I think you guys are building something that companies like HubSpot would be after like later on. I've seen, they're like, you acquire a lot of stuff. They've been acquiring a yeah. lot of new, big newsletters. One of my favorite newsletters they acquired in the last couple of years. So and they're in this space and they're podcast huh? network as well. Yeah. yeah. You guys have any tools? Like I'm a podcaster. You can hear on my show, right? Is there any tools you guys have around geared around the podcast world? No, not yet. <laughs> Maybe something to look into. <laughs> yeah. I Actually, just... one, one topic that is quite interesting is all around like content creation. Mm -hmm. Like our the rise of Canva kind of, right? And mm -hmm. it's interesting how things like that happen or Figma as well, right? It's all about content creation and it's relatively difficult for small and medium businesses to create compelling content. And our, our customers typically, they don't have the resources, they don't have a designer that they can ask to spend eight hours on a flyer or on an ad or whatever. So it has to be really easy and has to be quick and still has to look good, right? And that's the same mindset again. So content creation is definitely on our radar To We have some tools around that. Like I said, we have a landing page builder and we have like a, an image editing tool, but definitely there's always room to improve, right? That's an interesting one around like social media management. We integrate with Facebook Messenger, Instagram Messenger, WhatsApp, but maybe there's something coming around that, right? Social media advertising is an interesting one. It could be combined with the rest of the software as well. It's interesting. If I'm thinking about like the, like there was no really good tool out there for kind of a CRM to manage a podcast production, right? I know somebody's trying to build one right now. I've been chatting with him on Zoom calls, but I ended up building my own little scrum board type. What do they call them? I forgot what it's actually called, but it's a, just a drag and drop process, like a production line. I built inside of Asana because that's one of the tools I knew. So, yeah. and it's pretty, it automates the workflow. So on my podcast, I pretty much get on here, record you and I, as soon as I complete my checklist of stuff I'm supposed to do for the recording, I drag it into the next thing and assigns it to somebody on my team and they take it from there and I don't touch it again. Your CRM tool, I was looking at it, it looks like it has that same layout and depending on how configurable it is, 
Yeah. Uh, I use things like Calendly, which you already have a solution for. I use Asana, which your CRM, what I'm using it for, your CRM can probably take over. Task management and my production yeah. line. So your CRM could probably take over. The things I'm missing is I don't have a valid newsletter right now. And I use pod pages. My podcast website is hosted on pod pages, which is kind of like a, a blog and it ties in with the RSS feeds from all the tools. So that it knows when I, it automatically updates my page whenever I release something on the podcast channel. Right. So it just, it know, and it looks at my YouTube channel and knows. So I don't have to go to it every time I do a release. We just post the content where it goes and it picks it up and updates my page. It would be really simple. I think for yeah. you guys to take over the elements of pod pages and build something equivalent and then take a look at something like the production. So I was just yeah. curious in this space. So we're kind of a little off topic. <laughs> so let's circle back around. You guys are growing very aggressively. You're talking, like, you know, you, I think you mentioned earlier, Sid and Blue had like 100 employees when they acquired you. You're at 600 now. Is that what you said? 600 plus? Yeah, 650. So that's a 6x growth in, for three and a half, four years. Am I right? Or yeah, so Zenblue was yeah, in early 2019, around like 150. And then yeah. together with the newsletter to go, the company, my old company, were about like 220, 230. So from there to 650 in, in 2022 yeah. so with 4X. a couple of acquisitions. Yeah. yeah. So 4X, 4X in number of employees. Yeah. And then I assume that revenue's somewhere in there, right? There's a rule of thumb in the brick and mortar companies that we look at if before the owner tells us, if, it, if a company, most industries anyway, if the company, before the owner even tells us how much they're making, we can almost account for about a hundred to $120,000 worth of revenue per employee on a lot of companies. And some industries are totally different than that. But usually if somebody says, I got 15 employees, like, okay, we're probably doing 1.5 mil. And then usually more often than not, that's pretty close. So I'm assuming that you've kept the profitability up through that, or are you guys profitable at this point? I guess that's the question I'm looking for. Is that okay to share? Yeah. I don't think I can disclose that, but okay. we're in terms of cash burn, I don't think we're as aggressive as maybe our U.S. counterparts like Clavio mm -hmm. or, or Active Campaign. And we didn't have to let anybody go either. Okay. Uh, currently, there's a lot of layoffs in the tech world, but for us, mm -hmm. yeah, it's going well. Okay. And then are these, so you're, you got VC backing and private equity backing are the, so the structure of the deals, is it stock and cash, or can you tell me a little bit about the structure of the deals that the companies you're acquiring or the company that we acquire? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Typically since the founder team is very important to us, we always have some kind of stock based compensation as part of that deal and another part in cash. There's no one structure that fits like every deal, but it's typically like between 30 and 70% of stock versus, versus cash. That's somewhere around there. Okay. So both, yeah, we want to make sure the founders keep being incentivized and have a motivation to push the company forward with us. And there's typically like an earnout structure in place as well to reach certain targets and mm -hmm. typically around integration or reaching specific user or revenue numbers. I ask this question of a lot of my guests. What's one thing you know now you wish you'd have known on day one? Like what's something you've learned recently? Like, man, that would have been helpful if I'd have known that before we did our first acquisition or whatever. Is there any like yeah. valuable lessons you can share with the listeners? Yeah, I think the one metric that I always look at and I find more and more incredible in, especially in the software as a service space is just the net retention rate. 
if I had to evaluate a company only by one metric, <laughs> then I would probably pick that because it says so much about product market fit, about growth in the future and sustainability of the business model that it's, I wish I, I had known that earlier, even when I had my own company to, we looked at that metric a bit, but not mm -hmm. really in depth, analyzing that, understanding it can help make a business very predictable and makes it much more valuable. Like if you look at public companies and their net retention rates, the craziest example I can think of is Snowflake and their net retention rate is somewhere around like 170%, which is unheard of. It's crazy. So basically if they don't win any new customers a whole year, they would still grow 70%. It's in, it's incredible. That's right? insane, right? If you're net, so that means that every customer really seven out of 10 customers are referring new customers, right? I mean, if you look at the simplistic, that simplistically, if they've it's got 170% retention rate. They spend more money. A cohort, let's say a cohort of all customers in January, 2022, they spend, let's say $10,000. They would spend $17,000 next January. Okay. Right. It's the same cohort. And that ignores all the customers that churn in the, in the meantime. And that like, typically it's some customers churn. Let's say there there's a hundred customers in January, 2022, and they spend $10,000 after a year, we probably only have maybe 70 customers left, but they spend 170,000. So the expansion rate is even bigger, which is crazy. And that cohort that grows from 10,000 to 17,000 and then to almost 300,000 the next year. It's incredible. It's like a snowball. And I can see why that's so important to what you do because you're doing marketing automation and tools that help businesses grow, right? And your pricing model has to do with you make more money if they grow and they're successful. So if they're not growing and they're stagnant and they're just basically doing what they've always done, and not only does that indicate your tool's not working the way it probably was designed to work, but it also indicates that um, in you're, they're going to drop off, right? They can't afford to continue handling inflation and everything else. Any space in the marketing space, I can see where that's a critical key metric, like a thing to look at, right? Because you're in the business of helping them grow. Everything you have on your platform is designed around taking a company and helping them become a bigger company taking a yeah. company, helping them retain customers, gain new customers, communicate with customers, keep customers satisfied. And if that customer isn't spending more money with you the next year, then simplistically, they probably didn't grow much, right? I don't know too many businesses like that. Like I own a bunch of little different things, but I own a pest control company. And if my customer spends more money next quarter or the following quarter, than they did this quarter, I've done something wrong because I didn't kill their pest, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's one of the things I have one in Oklahoma. I employ some relatives with it, but if we get repeat business because we have yeah. guys that own Airbnbs, we got guys that commercial buildings that you just treat on a regular basis to prevent things, restaurants and stuff that need to treat the outside and keep things from coming in. Anything that's attractive to bugs, they're going to keep coming in. On the general basis, I, if we looked at my score on that, it'd probably be low. I get my yeah. customers back, but like every spring when the ants come crawling out of the ground, new hive or new nest of ants come in. So I do get a calls back from, hey, you killed the ants last year, they're back. And I'll think, mm. no, those ants aren't back. Those are new ants because we killed the last ones, <laughs> right? That said, but not all industries are like that where, you know, you get to grow because you're successfully doing what you promised you were going to do. 
Yeah. And sometimes it's also, there's a misalignment, like you said, right? For your pest control company, like you said, like you repeat business means that, well, <laughs> unless it's a couple of years or another property, but it could also right. mean something went wrong. Or if you go to see a doctor, like you don't want repeat <laughs> business with a doctor and always have to come back to the doctor, right? Or I don't know, there's some business models or, or if you have a bridal shop, right? <laughs> it's, it's unlikely that you will have re repeat business, but there's, yeah, it's in, in, inherent to certain business models where you have repeat business and it aligns with the customer's intentions and others where it doesn't. In the software as a service space, luckily a lot of times, if you have repeat business, it means you made the customer more successful and then it's a win-win for both the provider and the customer. I get that. So what's next? I mean, what are you, are you guys are going to continue acquiring companies or what's next in your, like, we already kind of know you got one more acquisition coming up. What is 2023's yeah. plan? Yeah. Like I said, we're in the middle of due diligence right now. So at the time this will be broadcasted, hopefully we'll have closed. And then yeah, 2023, I think we might slow down a bit on, on the M&A side just to also evaluate just doing that, like for the group, just to try understand really the impact that these acquisitions had and to make sure that we really choose the right companies and go through a very conscious effort as well. Like I said, I think we're going to move more into the strategic direction and we probably be a bit more selective. We might go a bit bigger over time as well, some strategic ideas around maybe the US market as well and maybe bigger companies in that space. But yeah, nothing's at stone, we'll see. And the beauty of working in a like fast growing scale up is that things can change from one day to another and it has changed a lot over the last years as well. I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll keep being very active and maybe we'll receive incredible opportunities that we can say no to, but overall, yeah, I think it's going to be more strategic and maybe a little, little slower in 2023. Who would you consider being somebody at your, about your size, meaning I'm not talking like HubSpot or something crazy big and been around for years and years and years, but so who would you consider like around the same customer base? Like who's your leading competitor? Every mm. business kind of has their arch nemesis, right? Is you're like, one day we're going to, we're going to beat these guys. Who is that for you guys? It used to be MailChimp when we were heavier, when we had a heavier focus on just email marketing mm -hmm. and then MailChimp was surprisingly acquired by Intuit. For so something crazy, no. like 800 million or what was the number on that? It was insane. Like they're, yeah, they're I think it was 12, 12 billion. Oh, somewhere yeah. Around that. yeah. But I mean, MailChimp is a much bigger company. Their mm -hmm. revenue is somewhere around, I think. The revenue is around like 800 million, to say, 1 yeah. million somewhere around yeah. that. Now things are changing a bit around MailChimp. Their founder resigned basically, mm -hmm. and they're integrated into the Intuit suite and they're, they increased their pricing and their free offer was, was decreased as well. So there's a lot of things happening that looks like they're trying to milk the cash cow. Um, right. uh, so I, I they got to get their 12 billion back somehow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know if we would consider them our biggest competitor. Now we have like a couple of newer competitors that are also growing fast in the e-commerce space. It's Clavio. We have Active Campaign, which is more from the sales CRM, but they also 
they also have a pretty nice solution on the marketing side now. HubSpot is typically more upmarket, much more mm -hmm. expensive than us. So it's not a direct competitor and more CRM focused than us. Any UFC type call outs? I'm coming for you. <laughs> no? All right. I didn't figure I'd get any response from that, but I had to try. Like, all right, HubSpot, we're going to eat your lunch and then one day we're going to acquire you. None of that. No UFC yeah, style call out. All right. That's a stretch goal, but yeah, why not? <laughs> I had to ask, we've, we've covered a lot of different topics and stuff. What have we missed, man? Like what's important for somebody out there in your space, not even just competing with you, but they're in the software as a service, they're building companies, they're looking at growing through acquisition. What's important for them to know? Yeah, I think our biggest learning was really to find our sweet spot in our acquisition strategy. I'm a big believer in acquiring a company for the team and the product and so just making sure that the team is right and fits in the company to make sure that the founders play an important role and can create impact in the group after. I think that's the most, my most important learnings over, the, over these acquisitions in the past. Well, one of my favorite things I ask is what can myself or the audience do for you, right? Is there a way we can participate in what you're doing, help you find businesses? I mean, what is there that we can do that would help you and your role as in Blue and help it grow? Yeah, for sure. Like part of why I love this side of my job, the VP Corp Dev, is that I get to talk to a lot of founders in that space. And what, but I mean, you interview people for a living <laughs> in a way. Uh, in a way, so, I love it. And it's very interesting because you get to, to talk to innovative people who have some kind of different mindset and are creating something that they believe will change the world. It's very interesting. So that's always great. So I'm always happy to be introduced to founders, ideally to companies where it is in that sweet spot, like a company between 50 and 30 employees has first product market fit might be a good addition to the send and blue platform that like, I'm very happy if, if somebody reaches out to me and I'm happy to hop on a call to, to meet these people. I think your tool, I was looking at your tool earlier and I was telling you before the show that I started looking into it and I was like, it could replace four or five things I'm doing, not only in the podcast side, but potentially on my acquisition and merger side, which I've currently been using the same type of technology stack where I'm using Asana and all these other tools. Somebody wanted to, you've got free plans and you've got pay plans. Give us the high level. So for anybody that doesn't know and hasn't went to the website already, what's the high level features of Send in Blue? And I think you have a special offer for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we have a free plan. You can send a lot of emails on that free plan. I think 300 per day. So it's quite a lot of emails. And there are some restrictions around volume and seats and so on, but we also have paid plans that are pretty competitively priced as well. And yeah, as a, as an offer today, I have a discount code for our audience. It's for a premium plan, which offers a lot of different features, a lot of landing page builders, CRM and so on that you can use with that. It's 50% off for the first three months. And the voucher code is how to exit with a two, number two, right. so how to exit. I guess you can put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. And you get 50% off the first three months. Awesome. We'll do that. We'll put that in the show notes. And if somebody walked away, the, the, the final question, first of all, how do people reach out to you? Like what's your favorite way for people to let you know they're, they exist and share something with you or show you yeah. a deal they might be want you to take a look at. So how do people reach you? 
Yeah, I think the easiest way is just on, to add me on LinkedIn, link, LinkedIn.com slash Shibesta, I think just my last name should work. And we'll put that just, in the show notes too. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah, just reach out there. Just drop me a line, add me if you like. That's the easiest way to reach me. Okay. And then I think I want to just thank you for being on the show. I'm trying to think if I missed anything here. I always like to end the show on a good note. So reach out to you if they've got deals. Check out the software, man. I, I was taking a look at different tools. You, your name popped up. It's funny. It was your name. Send in Blue came up, popped up as I was researching different tools out there for the B2B space for what I want to create around this and some other media uh, assets I want to purchase. And then your PR team reached out and said, hey, we'd like to put him on the show. And I'm like, Absolutely. I want to talk to this guy. So that was kind of wheeled into existence by accident, I think. But I do appreciate having you here today. This has been exciting. I love getting companies that are actually doing it. We got a lot of advisors and mentors and teachers and financial analysts and stuff on the show. But to get people on here that are living it, that you, you, you guys are eating deals. You did six in a year. That means every, every other month you're closing something. And that's almost insane, right? There's not too many guys out there doing that. Big yeah. or small, that it takes the same amount of work to do the due diligence, close, integrate a small five-person company as it does a hundred-person company. Like there's more financial yeah. risk on the other one, but the work's still there. So I don't want to underestimate or under uh, a the lot of level of work you guys pull off in a short period of time. So I'm impressed, and I'd like to I like to circle back around with you in about a year and see what it's looking like, how it's working, and what worked, what didn't, lessons learned from these acquisitions and ones you've made after that. So thank you for being on the show today. And look forward to seeing what the future holds for you, guy. Yeah, thanks. It's fun, fun being on the show. Thanks. Awesome. Hang out for a second after the show, and that's the show, guys. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. Uh, suggest a guest or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind 
The Investors and Entrepreneur Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering, where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E. PM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.